Welcome back to the Go on the Match podcast. Today I'm joined by Karan Tejwani, who I'm very excited to have on today. He's the author of Wings of Change, a book telling the story of how the world's biggest energy drink made its mark in the world of football. Karan, thanks for giving up your time today, mate, and coming on the podcast. No problem, mate. Thank you for having me on. It's good to be here. Um, just a bit of background into what we'll be diving into today, just for our listeners. Um, I've been personally fascinated by the Red Bull model and how they've got this multi-club ownership with owning the likes of RB Leipzig, Red Bull Salzburg, New York Red Bulls, just to name a few. And after reading Karan's book, it just it really did grip me. So I suppose the first place to start is if you could just give us some background on what made you so passionate about writing the book to begin with. Um, the idea of the book was, uh, it came from watching a few games from the two Red Bull clubs in Europe. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we've known about those two clubs, well, the entire Red Bull network for uh, so long. We'd, I'd, I'd been reading about it for, for many months before, and I was fascinated by it, but I'd never really known the specifics of it until I started watching them. Yeah. And it was in the 2019-2020 season, which was two seasons ago now. And they were playing, and, and Salzburg were in, in the same group as Liverpool in the Champions League, and Leipzig were doing fairly well in the Bundesliga with Julian Nagelsmann. And it was basically the speed of how they played, the way they played. And, you know, we all know how disliked Red Bull are in football, especially in German football. Yeah. Um, and considering that, they do have a bit of a mixed reputation where they're disliked for the way they've gotten into football, but their football model itself is quite appreciated by many people around. You know, we can dislike them whilst appreciating that they do uh, their football business right. So, you know, they're focused on younger players, focused on uh, uh, vertical attacking football. They're focused on promoting younger players from different countries. They've got a wide-ranging scouting network. So it was all that that came together. And, you know, the, the Salzburg game against Liverpool in the Champions League, they had about eight or nine different nationalities yeah. uh, starting in their starting 11, uh, out of 11 players, obviously. And, you know, it ranged from Norway, Mali, Zambia, South Korea, uh, Japan even with Minamino so you know it was, it was that sort of thing that interested me where they had so many different backgrounds and so many young players coming through and uh, that was ultimately the inspiration I wanted to bring that all together in one book and see what made the Red Bull model so uh, firstly interesting to younger players secondly what made them so polarizing amongst football fans and third how they did what they did yeah I know I mean like just touch on that game obviously being a Liverpool fan myself you know you could see, you know, the style of play and everything, which is, I'm sure, something we'll go on to touch on. But just, just for our listeners at home, um, they'll tend to be supporting clubs that are based in the UK. So if you wouldn't mind just, I know it's quite difficult to do this, but just giving us some detail into how Red Bull operates its model and how they've been so, succe so successful in doing it. Yeah, so um, the Red Bull football dynasty, I'd say, started off in 2005. The dynasty is a big word for uh, but yeah, they started off in 2005 uh, with the takeover of Austria Salzburg and Austria Salzburg at the time were uh, a historic club, fairly historic, not, not a big history with many trophies, but they had a few trophies here and there. They even played a UEFA Cup final about a decade or so before uh, Red Bull took over. And um, yeah, they, they were a, a, a fairly historical club in Austria, and, but they were struggling financially. And that's when Red Bull came in and peep, and having sponsorship uh, at clubs at the time in Austria wasn't uncommon. You know, we've seen clubs uh, named after sponsors, stadiums are named after sponsors. So it's not uncommon and they were very well welcomed. But uh, that was only because fans assumed it would be, you know, Red Bull Salzburg 
that's it. The, only the name changes uh, and the stadium name changes. But what Red Bull wanted was to essentially wipe off the entire previous history. So they wanted to wipe off Austria Salzburg's previous history and change their colours. Their colours initially were purple and white, but Red Bull made them the white and red that we now know they are. Um, and that that was a bit annoying to the supporters. They launched protests, formed the Phoenix Club one year later. Uh, but, but Red Bull were ultimately the owners of... Well, they were... Uh, Austria Salzburg as a whole, they made Austria Salzburg, Red Bull Salzburg, and um, some people got along with it because they thought Red Bull were, you know, a local company, they were a Salzburg-based company, Dietrich Mateschitz was a Salzburg man, who was the founder of Red Bull, Yeah, and um, yeah, that's how they got into football in Salzburg, and eventually that brand became so popular that they delved into other countries around the world, uh, New York was taken over one year later, the Metro Stars became the, the New York Red Bulls, uh, some years after that, Red Bull Brazil was born, and then RB Leipzig came up. And um, but yeah, they uh, until about 2012, all four of these clubs didn't really have a firm direction of where to go. They had the money and they had the access to any resources they wanted, but they didn't have the right football people because Dietrich Mateschitz is not a football man; he's a business person, and he hired people who he thought would be ideal football men. But that wasn't the case. It came until 2012, where Ralph Ranić uh, joined the club. And Ralph Ranić, we'll probably get into a story later, but Ralph Ranić is ultimately the, the father of Red Bull football. He made uh, all the Red Bull clubs what they are today, and he wanted his football model implemented across all four clubs. And uh, it was the model that we now know, you know, young players, international scouting, wide-ranging scouting network, uh, focusing mainly on players between the age of 16 to 24 years old, 20 to 24 years old, and uh, relying on younger coaches. And um, that's what they did. So... Between 2005 and 2012, they were struggling. The German club in, in Leipzig were struggling to go up to the Bundesliga, mainly fluttering around the third and fourth division. Uh, Salzburg were winning trophies, but there was a feeling it wouldn't be a long-term thing and they weren't able to get into the Champions League group stages. And uh, But Ranier came in, Leipzig went to the Bundesliga, albeit he was massively helped by the amount of money they have. Uh, Salzburg eventually reached the Champions League in 2019, but before that, they were doing well in the Europa League and helped Austria's uh, coefficient ranking in the UEFA rankings. And, uh, and yeah, that's how so many of these stars were born. You know, think of Erling Haaland, Dominic Shabazlai, Takumi Minamino, Sadio Mane, all that. They all grew up through the Red Bull model inspired by Ralph Rennick. So, uh, yeah, he's the main guy and he's gone now. Ralph Rennick is, has left the club now, but his blueprint is there with the people he brought in. Yeah, I suppose that blueprint that you touch on there with Ralph Rangnick, that's the bit that really does grip me. It's, it, it really fascinates me about the Red Bull model, that this style of play that they've been integrating, not just in one team, but throughout all the teams, this sort of fast-pressing game. Um, and Obviously, that comes from Ralph Rangnick, but can you sort of give us a bit more detail around how he managed to implement that? Yeah, sure. Um, Ralph Rangnick, um, I'll go into a bit of background with him first. Ralph Rangnick was... Uh, he's seen as the father of modern German pressing. So you think of people like Jürgen Klopp, Julian Nagelsmann, Thomas Tuchel, even uh, a bit of Thomas Tuchel in, in the start. Yeah. Um, these managers, the German managers, they've been uh, basing their game around Ralf Rennick and what he tried to do with his football style. Um, he was inspired by teams like the Milan of Arrigo Saki or even uh, Valery Lobanovsky's Dynamo Kiev teams with their high-pressing model where they press high up the pitch and they try to retain the ball as quickly as they can. It's 
you can't say it's similar to Pep Guardiola's five-second rule or six-second rule, yeah. but it has identical principles where they want to stay high up the pitch, win the balls because they can attack their defenders with the players and work off the ball. And obviously, the most important part, playing with verticality, so very few back passes. Well, obviously, unless in, in the situation, they just want to keep the ball moving forward and try to get as close to the opposition goal as they can. And that was uh, that that sort of thing was created by Ralph Frenick and his mentor, Helmut Grosch, who both of them had similar philosophies and similar ideas for football in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, they worked together at Stuttgart, where Ralph Rangnick is mainly based in that area, in, in that area of Germany. And uh, at the time, in German football, as we know, it wasn't that popular to have high-pressing football. They, they were popular with uh, the liberos, you know, the sweeper roles, Franz Beckenbauer and Lotte Matthäus, they all played there. Um, and it wasn't popular to see the football Ralph Rangnick wanted. So when Ralph Rangnick and Helmut Grosch implemented their four at the back zonal marking system, they were criticized for it. You know, people felt they were quite big headed and, you know, going against German tradition. But Ranjik and Grosch felt they were doing the right thing by going to a newer style of football. Okay. And, you know, the 1990 World Cup, Germany eventually won it. But uh, while it, they did win the trophy, it was a big thing to win the World Cup as it always is. But it sort of felt like the beginning of the end for German football because the World Cup gave them the invitation to think that the, the sweeper system would last them forever which obviously wasn't the case. It's, it's non-existent now. Uh, and then obviously Germany, the national team started struggling from the late 90s, early 2000s, even though they reached a World Cup final in 2002, but it acquired a bit of luck with the draw. Uh, failed in the Euros in 2000 and 2004. 98 World Cup was a bit of a farce because they had an old aging team and wasn't that special. And in 2006, when they finished third, that was when the new German national team came up, which was inspired by the football of Grosch and Ranić, you know, playing for the back attacking football and that's what the new generation of German coaches are inspired by and while you can't it's unfair to say Ranić inspired all these new great coaches you could add that you know perhaps Ranić and Grosch have a say uh, in what uh, these coaches and these these footballers are today so he has a big hand in modern German football. Yeah I mean some of the the players that that have been produced throughout the the model as well, looking at the likes of, you know, Timo Werner, Naby Keita, obviously Haaland, Upa Meccano, obviously Canate, he's just come to my team, Liverpool. You know, that's just to name a few of the players that, that have been produced for that system. And then, you know, you touch on there, the coaches as well. I think people don't probably realise that people like Marco Royce, that, you know, is it obviously at Dortmund now, Ralph uh, Hasselhutten, who's at uh, Southampton, and obviously Nagelsmann, who's just gone to Bayern recently. Do you feel like this sort of conveyor belt of talent that they've been able to produce is a real mark of the success that the model really does work? Yeah, it is for sure. Uh, you know, we say that they have a network of clubs and all these clubs play similar styles of football, which ultimately benefits these coaches that when they're moving with, between clubs, yeah, uh, they can sort of bring it forward and the players are already accustomed to it because they played the similar football under the previous coach who now departed. So take... Jesse Marsh, for example, who currently coaches Leipzig, yeah. he's managed three yeah. NBL clubs in New York, Salzburg and Leipzig and all of them had similar styles of football. Some of them had similar players as well. Dominic Schaubers, like played under, under Jesse Marsh at two different Red Bull clubs. So that sort of thing helps these coaches as well. You know, they can get an easier path to integrating themselves and understanding the culture of how, understanding the football culture and understanding how these players play and how these players should be playing. Um, so that sort of helps them too and this 
new German-inspired way of football is the sort of football every top club aspires to have. You know, yeah. when when Chelsea yeah. sank, when Chelsea sacked Frank Lampard, there was always a lingering feeling that the next coach was going to be a highly rated German coach. In the end, it ended up being Thomas Tuchel, um, and you know that, that, that that's been quite successful for them with the Champions League win and all that. So these new younger type of coaches who would be there at clubs for a very long time and have the right resources around them to succeed. They are the coaches that are most wanted in football. And, you know, it's not a surprise in the past year that people like Marco Rosa and Julian Nagelsmann, Jesse Marsh, they've all left their clubs and gone to bigger, better things. That is their potential. That is the, the level they should be at because that's what they've been trained to do by a system so refined within the Red Bull model. Yeah. And I suppose how they operate in the market as well has got to be quite strict, quite a strict philosophy. I know you touched on it earlier that they only buy between, was it 17 to 24? Um, yep. Is is that specifically not just for the style of play that they implement, but just also for how they would work in the market, selling, buying, you know, the buying players like Danny Almo, who's come from Spain, you know, that they know that he can play the system, but they're going to get a sell on as well. You know, look at like mm-hmm. Canati has come to Liverpool as well. They, they know that these players are probably going to get shifted on, but it, it, it's got to work both ways. They've got to be able to play the style, but they've also got to have a, a sell-on value. Is that sort of correct way of looking at it? Yep, that is the correct way of looking at it. You know, I mentioned in the book as well that, you know, Ralf Rannick is, he mainly wants to have younger players. And one of the reasons is that they have a high sell-on value. Yeah. You know, they, they buy players for two, three, four million and sell them for 10, 20 times the price. Uh, that they bought them for eventually. Uh, Upa McConnell is a good example this year. He only signed for two and a half million from, uh, I can't remember which French club it was, but he was sold eventually for about 40 million to Bayern Munich. Yeah. And you could see that for most of the players they sell, even Konate. Um, but yeah, one of the main points is that they have a high selling value. Another one is that they have, these younger players have a better injury record or a better injury history. They're less likely to be injured. Another point would be that they have better motivational um they have better aspirations as footballers. You know, if you're a young footballer, you're you aspire to be amongst the best. But if you're an older footballer, you want to maintain that reputation. So they want players that aspire to be amongst the best players in the world. And many of those players have done that. So uh, you know, it, there's a lot of points that that go behind wanting to have younger players at your club. And once again, it, it's come along with the theory of Ralph Rangnick. And they this, you know, a lot of the work, a lot of the work they do depends on their on pitch talent. But having the right mentality is. Uh, a part of if you want to succeed as a footballer at one of the Red Bull clubs, you know, the, there is the three C's uh, that all Red Bull clubs follow, which is capital, concept and competence. And capital is the money they have or the resources they have access to. Uh, concept is their footballing model and competence is what the players need to show on the pitch, which is the talent, the desire to succeed and their desire to grow as footballers. And the, the last C of competence is the most uh, important when it comes to the on-pitch talent. So, yeah, that is being a younger player and having younger players amongst the club is one of the core principles of, of these Red Bull clubs. Yeah. And as we touched on earlier, obviously they've got a number of clubs, but do you think that they'll maybe expand or look to expand that in the coming years? Maybe look at, maybe even look at the likes of the UK or maybe another continent, maybe Africa to just expand that model and grow more? It seems quite difficult in Europe um, because when because of UEFA's conflict of interest rules that prevent uh, multiple clubs from one ownership being in 
uh, in European competition. They managed to circumvent it in the case of Salzburg and Leipzig, but that took, took some complication as well because they had to move some staff around and prove that they weren't the same uh, club. And by by technicality, they aren't, but we all know what's what's going on behind the scenes. It just feels like yeah. they are the same uh, same family from of clubs. So in Europe, it seems quite difficult, especially in the UK. Um, but perhaps abroad, you could see something happening. You know, last year, a few of the Red Bull staff spoke about wanting to have a greater international portfolio of clubs. Right. They signed partnerships with clubs in India um, where they work in an academy perspective and in a developmental perspective where they send Red Bull staff there and perhaps work, work with a few young players. If they could, they could move some players uh, to the European clubs to support them. Um, but they have uh, three clubs, uh, four clubs in three different continents in Europe, North America, and South America, and that seems pretty sufficient for them now. Uh, if I were to predict uh, a senior club, it would probably be in the Far East, but even that seems fairly unlikely. Yeah. Uh, but I do expect more partnership deals where they sign partnerships with clubs in an academy perspective or a youth perspective to work with their youth players. Uh, another thing to note is that they mainly work in countries, well, the trend is that they mainly work in countries where Red Bull, the energy drink, is doing quite well. So okay. uh, in, 2018, in 2019, before they signed their partnership with an Indian club, the highest selling, the, the country with the highest sales of Red Bull, the energy drink, was India. Right. And the very next year, they got an Indian club in. And the same happened in 2005 when, this, when, when Red Bull was doing quite well in the US. And one year later, they have a club in the US. So... You know, if you look at the figures, it, the trend is still existing where they mainly form deals in countries where Red Bull, the engineering is, is doing quite well. And I wouldn't say that's the main reason, but I'm sure it has some part to play in it. Yeah, and I, I suppose that leads quite nicely onto my next question, which, I mean, it, it's obvious that, and I suppose it's quite well documented, how much teams and fans don't like RB Leipzig, especially in Germany. You know, you see like when they go away to Dortmund, they get a really bad reception on away games. Do you think that'll always be the case or do you think that might disappear over time? Because I suppose that that leads quite nicely into the fact that you've said that they'll only sort of populate themselves in countries where Red Bull's doing well. Is that because of how they're perceived and, and received as, as a fan base? I think that in time, there will be more, uh, not appreciation, but perhaps more acceptance of what they, of, of their existence. Uh, you know, with the older fans, the traditional fans that have watched German football for decades and decades, they don't want Red Bull in there because of, you know, German football is very fan-centric, very politically-centric, yeah. and fans need to have a voice where, and, and, and RB Leipzig don't exactly do that. Um, they circumvented the 50 plus one rule, which is perhaps the most sacred rule in German football, um, or in modern German football at least. Um, and once you do that as a club, you, you're very unlikely to be popular amongst fans yeah. uh, unless you have an exemption. So once they did that, they, they knew what they were signing up for. They knew that they were going to be widely unpopular. Um, but perhaps in maybe 10, 20, 30 years, when there's a newer generation of fans who've seen, who've grown up with RB Leipzig as a part of German football, I think there'll be more acceptance of them. Yeah. Uh, and what I've noted in, in the years covering Leipzig is that the main dislike towards them comes from Germany. I think from an international perspective, they're more appreciated, uh, more recognized for their model. You know, if, if for example, I'm in a room with a German and a non-German, I'm, I'm more likely to get disapproval about RB Leipzig from the German person. Um, but, but that's how it is, I suppose, where German football fans who've been in Germany for so long 
understand German football for so long, they prefer to not have Leipzig, whereas international fans who've seen what they do with younger players on a fairly small expense list, they would be quite accepting of Leipzig. So um, it, it comes down to perception. And I suppose that's how it is. I think that I myself am not a very... In, I don't endorse what Red Bull do in football, especially in Germany, but yeah, it is what it is. They exist, and this is how modern football is working. Yeah, and I suppose sticking with that sort of fan perspective, RB Leipzig's fans themselves, you know, how do you think they view it? If their club is always sort of selling their best talent, do you think there ever comes a point where they maintain and they keep their best talent to strive to win trophies? Because I suppose you look at a lot of the German teams like Dortmund, where you know, maybe their fans are a bit sick of selling their players and they, they want to win things. And do you think it ever comes at a point where their fans have had enough of selling their players and they're maybe a bit sick of the model and they want to actually, you know, win silverware? It's hard to say at this point, you know, I, I felt that this would be the season where that mass selling stops, but it's only increased where they've lost their head coach. They're probably the best player in Master Sabbath. So, and, uh, one of the best defenders in Upa Meccano, and also he went to Bayern Munich with the nearest rivals in Germany. So I thought this would be the season where things would change, but it wasn't clearly. And um, I think in time, there would be a point where the fans, the few Leipzig fans that are actually based in Leipzig, are actually annoyed and, and you know perhaps would want their club to stop selling their best players so they can compete. Um, so far, it, you know, they've reached, a, they reached the cup final once, they reached the Champions League semi-finals once, and a few other things they finished runners up in the Bundesliga and based on the model that is perhaps as good as they can be um, and in time I suppose fans would want success you know nobody wants to support a club that isn't ambitious about winning trophies or winning or going to the next level and this is the peak that they can reach I think that based on a Red Bull perspective they are perhaps in the right way because the Salzburg players are coming through they're able to bring them to Leipzig and the other clubs in New York and Brazil are doing fairly well um, but it's hard to say. I think in time, three, four years, five years, maybe fans would be a little more wanting of success. They did want to see their club win more trophies. Yeah. And you touched on earlier that RB Leipzig and Salzburg have both gone quite far in Europe in, in recent years. And just something I was just thinking about then, should they ever play each other in a European competition? How do you think that will be received by both fan bases? Uh, they, they did play each other the two, three, three seasons ago, I think, 2017, yeah. 18. Yeah, in the group stages of the champion of the Europa League, sorry. And um, it, was, it was it was as you expected to be. I think the fans were quite normal, quite res- uh, respectable of the other club, just as any other normal game would be in Europe. Um, the group they were in included Celtic and Rosenborg and the two Red Bull clubs. Okay. And uh, the other the other two clubs raised suspicions of a bit of a collusion between the two clubs, saying they'd want they'd help the other team qualify through the group stage. And in the final group stage game, I think Leipzig and Celtic had to play against each other. And many Celtic newspaper uh, Celtic fans and uh, the media felt that Leipzig would throw the game away to help Salzburg qualify. All right. um, ultimately, it wasn't the case. There was no match fixing or anything like that. They had a fairly competitive game, some entertaining clashes. Um, but that feeling is always there that, that opposition clubs and fans feel that those two would collude if there was to be the case um, you know even when the draw was made people from both clubs Salzburg and Leipzig spoke about wanting to have a competitive game and they'd be fair about it and there'd be no collusion but um, and you know you have no reason to believe that there would be some sort of throwing away or fixing anything like that it's just a normal competitive game as the footballers want, would want 
Um, but yeah, whenever they do play each other in the future, there will always be doubts about match fixing or throwing away or whatever. So yeah. that's just normal as, you, as as you'd expect. And I suppose just touching on the market again, transfer market. I mean, I suppose most people have sort of cottoned on to the idea now that Salzburg has really been like a feeder club to Leipzig. So, you know, you see people, I think it was He Chan, that might have moved from Salzburg to, to Leipzig quite recently. Mm-hmm. A lot more are a lot more teams starting to look at Salzburg for their players rather than Leipzig, you know, before they make that transition over. Do you think that's something that people have more cottoned on to now? I think it's starting to become more um more of a common theme. You know, Liverpool obviously started preferring some of those Salzburg players. Um and you know, the way it is, Salzburg to Leipzig is a fairly good way for the players and, and their perspective because they're going, as I mentioned, to a, a similar football club with similar football ideas. Yeah. So it's fairly easy for them to adapt. And Germany to Austria is they speak the same language as country, it's easy to settle into, I suppose. Um, so they'd want they'd, they it's a good option to have. But now more clubs are starting to see that if you eliminate Leipzig from the race for a particular player's transfer, you'd rather just go to Salzburg instead of paying a higher fee when they become even better at Leipzig. So, you know, players in recent times, you've seen players like Harlem go to Dortmund from Salzburg. Patsendaka has gone to Leicester from uh, Salzburg again, Enoch and Weppel to Brighton. So I think more clubs are starting to recognise that we should eliminate Leipzig from the transfer race and, and get in and go straight to Salzburg itself because it saves you a fair bit of money a few yeah. years down the line. And you get a very talented player who's well refined in a particular system. Um, so that that's becoming more of a common theme. Uh, there's been about 20, 21 transfers between Salzburg and Leipzig, and each time there's always uh, some sort of doubt that these transfers are a bit troublesome and a bit tr- a bit they're affecting the competitiveness of the of the two leagues because Leipzig Leipzig's rivals don't have that sort of access to Salzburg, and Salzburg's rivals don't have the access to a club like Leipzig who, who can give them a lot of money. So, yeah, um, you know, that, that's always going to be a problem in, in football. But I think in, in in a few years, we'll see more clubs buying directly from Salzburg instead of seeing the player go from Salzburg to Leipzig to another club for a very big fee. Yeah. And I watched a, a little clip on YouTube about a, um, from an, uh, it was a New York Red Bull fan. And he sort of gave us a description about how that model has operated over there for years. And he was talking there about how when they first took over and they were buying players like Henri went there and Tim Cahill. And then as soon as uh, RB Leipzig's been set up, they've kind of just threw their attention away from uh, New York Rebels and put all their focus on RB Leipzig. Is that definitely true? They sort of, you know, put all their focus into Europe now and they're not really putting too much um, investment or focus onto New York Rebels in the US. It does seem that way. Um, it does seem like Leipzig are the top of the pile. Salzburg is second, and maybe Brazil and, and, and New York are um, after that. Because, you know, New York had a good start. They reached the MLS Cup final. They had a new stadium, the Red Bull Arena in, in New York. Yeah. And then after 2012, the trend, it was there to see that New York were perhaps having less investment. And that comes with, you could say that, perhaps Red Bull don't see the benefit of investing in MLS because of MLS's uh, financial system where, you know, you don't make that much money as you would in Europe. Yeah. Um, so that that's a fair reason for them or that's their perspective of seeing things, perhaps not a fair reason for the club's fans. But, you know, I've, I've come across several fans from New York over the last two or three years who've been fairly annoyed and, you know, lost interest in, in the New York Red Bulls because they feel they are becoming a corporate club where 
they only there to benefit uh, the two European clubs. Yeah. Um, you know, but there have been a few changes recently. Uh, in 2019, Ralph Ranić and Paul Mitchell they they started focusing on the two clubs outside Europe, but both of them left immediately. So there was a bit more confusion again. The New York club they got a few more. Uh, staff members, uh, a new head coach in Gerard Struber, uh, who went there, but even he's had a shaky start. But but there is a worry and there are constant complaints about the investment in the team. Uh, I'm, I'm on this one New York Red Bulls fans forum and I see so many complaints every day of people saying they don't want to renew the season ticket or they don't want to go to games anymore because they lost interest. Yeah, And they have fair reasons for it because of the lack of investment or the lack of interest from uh, the hierarchy. But yeah, to, to answer the question, it does feel that way that Leipzig are at the top of the pile and then Salzburg and then there's a big gap and then there's the two non-European clubs. Yeah. And I suppose lastly, um, I just want to touch on the whole multi-club ownership model. It seems to be a very popular thing now when you see obviously the likes of the City Group doing it. They've got teams in Mumbai, obviously they've got New York as well and obviously Man City. Do you foresee this becoming a repetitive thing now in football going forward? I think it will be. I think it's quite profitable for, well, once they get right, it's quite profitable for uh, a lot of people. Uh, Red Bull have made a fair amount of money from it and it's it, in a way it sort of benefited the energy drink as well. Um, for Manchester City, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but you could say it's a, it's a fairly decent sports watching project or whatever it is. Or, yeah. Uh, but it, it does benefit a lot of people. It does profit a lot of people. Um, and it works in different ways. I think it'll become a thing of the future where lots of companies and lots of states have access to football. And football is popular around the world. Everyone, every country watches football and you're more than likely to meet a person who, who has a passion in football anywhere in the world. So, um, yeah, as long as football is popular, this sort of thing will become popular and people will want to bank on it. So it's not a surprise to see Red Bull and CFG come up, become big and become quite global. Red Bull have four clubs in their, or five clubs in their in their network. City have nine or ten, and both of them I expect them to keep growing and becoming more national, either in a senior perspective or a youth perspective. So it's not a surprise. It's the way football is going, and the only way to stop it would be to introduce more regulations. But that seems fairly unlikely too, because by law, what they're doing isn't illegal. But sometimes the law is a bit, a bit silly as well. So yeah. what can we say? <laughs> So just before I let you go, obviously, I just want to say a massive thank you for giving up your time and coming on. And, you know, it's, it's a story that really fascinates me, always has done. So I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot from you today. But if people are more interested in the subject, they want to know more, you know, where, where can they purchase your book? Yeah, Wings of Change is available on most international booksellers. Uh, Amazon does them. Uh, so does Book Depository. So does Watterson's if you're in the UK. Uh, but yeah, all, all the major booksellers will do them online and in, or as an ebook or as, an, as a hard copy. Absolutely fantastic. Once again, just massive thank you for giving up your time and coming on. I've really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed that episode and want to keep notified for future episodes, please make sure you subscribe, follow and share. And of course, leave us a five-star rating. You can now follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, all at Go In The Match to keep updated for future episodes and updates on the podcast.